Uh, good afternoon, everyone. My name is Jerry Hahn from Purdue University Sirius. I'd like to welcome you to the August 19th session of the Sirius Summer Security Seminar Series. This is the last one for this summer, but watch this space. We're going to make our uh, fall and spring uh, seminars available as well, so you'll be able to uh, to kind of keep up with this uh, with this whole series as we go on through the year. We've been very pleased with the lineup we've had in place, and we hope that you've benefited from hearing from the cybersecurity experts and practitioners we've assembled for you. These sessions would not be possible without the support of the members of the Sirius Strategic Partnership Program. To learn more about Sirius and the Sirius Strategic Partnership Program and how your organization may benefit, please contact info at Sirius.purdue.edu. During the presentation, please keep your lines muted. If you have a question, please submit your questions through the Q&A function. It's my pleasure to introduce our speaker for today. Elena Peterson joined PNNL in 1990 and is currently a senior cybersecurity researcher in the Computation and Analytics Division. Ms. Peterson has led research, development, and management of multiple cross-disciplinary, multi-laboratory projects focused in the fundamental sciences and national security sector. Her work has included research and development of integrated computational environments for bioinformatics, physics, computational chemistry, and cybersecurity. She is currently the principal investigator for the Millstones and Mutant projects, which apply algorithms and tools from the biological sciences to create new and innovative solutions to relevant cybersecurity problems, thus merging two of her main interests. With that, I'll turn it over to Elena. Thank you, Jerry. I appreciate it. Um, and I appreciate being here. This is, uh, this is a really nice event, and I'm excited to uh, tell you a bit about some of the work that we do uh, at the National Lab. Uh, as Jerry said, um, I, I've been at the lab. I'm currently a senior cybersecurity researcher. Uh, I've been at the lab a little over 30 years. Um, I graduated from the University of Oregon uh, with a degree in, in software engineering um, and have used that to do all kinds of work, in, in, like the intro says, in biology and chemistry and uh, now cyber and national security. And, and blending those two has, has been a lot of fun. Um, and I'm going to talk about uh, one way that we've done that um, uh, in, in this talk. Um, I did want to just start with a little bit about what a uh, national lab is, in case you haven't heard of the Pacific Northwest National Lab. Uh, the U.S. Department of Energy has team national laboratories uh, around the country. Uh, we're the one in southeast Washington state um, near the Hanford site. Uh, we are operated by what's called the Office of Science, so that's Army mission is anything having to do with Office of Science. Um, especially around energy uh, and uh, securing en the, the energy grid and things like that. There are other types of laboratories that may, may focus in other areas, um, especially around securing our nuclear arsenal and or doing defense type programs. Uh, but we're a pretty wide, um, uh, we have a pretty wide um, uh, charter for what the kinds of work that we do uh, for the Department of Energy. Um, I'm going to show you this slide, some of this data. It's just a, it's a little bit to, um, it's a little bit behind at this point, a couple years behind, but just to give you the breadth uh, and idea of the kind of stuff that we do at the lab, there's probably closer to 5,000 staff now than the 4,500 we listed here. Um, and we're just over the billion dollar mark in, in R&D expenditures. Um, we work in the four primary missions, and this is still true, science, um, US uh, scientific foundations, energy, the environment, and national security. And even though we are in the Office of Science lab, a, a whole lot of the work that we do is in the national security field. Um, by by fear, 
but a lot of it's the nature of things like securing the, uh, the, the electrical grid and things like that. So all of this really crosses over for us. Uh, we have uh, three main offices and, and other campuses around our, our main campus in Richland, which is where I'm at right now. We have a, a large growing campus over in Seattle on the, on the western side of the state. We do a, um, a marine science work in, in SCRIM and have some work being done in Portland. We have at this time, of course, a lot of people working from home and all over the country and uh, even in other parts of the world. Um, and we'll probably continue to work in that direction given, uh, given the nature of the of how we work these days. Um, so with that, I am in part of the National Security Directorate, and, um, and in that directorate, I'm part of the Computation and Analytics um, Division. So we do a lot of the, the main computing and national security, so it includes data science and math and statistics, software engineering, and cybersecurity. Um, one of the things that I wanted to point out for what we do at the lab is that we really try and take everything from the, the beginning stages of what you might need to do in the research oriented, um, do the research that needs to be done, actually engineer it, create real systems, and then put those systems into operation um, and, uh, and have the effect on, on securing the nation um, that we wanna have by actually using, putting things into operation. And what's not shown on this slide, um, it, but is definitely key is part of this is really more of a circle than a straight line. So from operations then, our ability to do operations in a lot of areas teaches a lot about, teaches us a lot about the kind of research that we need to do um, and kind of can drive that whole circle. Um, in some ways, you know, going from research to operations is great, the, the concept of, you know, eating your own dog food and making sure whatever you're doing really does work. But I think the other side of it is just important. What do we know about what's going on in the world in cybersecurity and what we're doing so that we can see what needs to be done in the next five to 10 years? Uh, we often talk about, at, at National Labs, we talk about solving lab-worthy problems, big, hard problems. Um, and, and you can't do those uh, in, in a vacuum. You need to understand what the realities are now, what the realities are going to be. Um, and I think one way to do that is just really boots on the ground, um, exposure to the real world. Uh, so we, we operate in that mode at the National Lab. And the project that I'm going to talk to you about is, is a pretty darn good example of, uh, of going from research engineering operations and, and, and that cycle. Um, so this, with that, I will, I'm going to talk to you about a capability that we have. It uh, does leverage biology in the world of cybersecurity. Um, and I'll go through all of that. The project is called Millstones. Um, that, is a, that is an acronym um, that probably doesn't make a lot of sense anymore, but that's what happens. Um, when you're working for the government, almost everything is an acronym of some kind. I'll do my best to not use too many of them in this talk. Um, uh, but Millstones is a high order capability, capability that we've applied in, in one case to uh, the problem of malware, um, which is the use case that I will, um, that I will talk about. Um, but it really is a capability, and at the highest level, um, the idea is to compare sets of behaviors, um, and we compare them using uh, nearness metrics, and we get a score out of these comparisons. So that's what we mean by comparing. Um, by behavior, what we mean is any ordered sequence of events, and it's got, uh, the, the data that we work on is where order matters and frequency doesn't. Um, since it is really based on a bunch of statistical algorithms, um, there's lots of ways to apply statistics to frequency, but that's not what we do. It's really where the order of these events matter. And, and as I get into some of the details of the biology, you'll understand why. Um, so it can be any sort of ordered sequence 
whether that's time or anything specific to the domain, um, doesn't matter as long as the order is um, is indicative of, of something that you're, you're interested in. Um, the events are anything that can be consistently labeled or grouped and or grouped. Um, opcodes from a, a disassembled binary, log file entries, patterns of NetFlow, real-time events, um, anything that you can consistently label and hopefully group th similar things together um, is something that our, our capability would um, be able to, to work with. Um, and as I said, it leverages the nature of what's called protein similarity, and I'm going to go into more detail on that. Um, but it, it leverages the, the, that natural property and all of the biology and tools that have been built around that natural property for a good amount of years. Um, just for a little bit of shameless plug, we did one, an R&D 100 award in 2019. Um, so that was, that was exciting, and I got to go to that event. Um, we also commercialized this in 2017 and, and won an FLC, which is um, a DOE-wide commercialization award, um, and we won that in 2018. And we have a patent. There's actually two different patents on the work that we've done here. Um, it finally came through in 2019. I think we started that process in about 2015. Um, and what you're going to see here is really the culmination of about eight years. Um, and it's not eight solid years total, but uh, you know, it, it takes time for these things to sort of develop and, and become things at times. And so um, this was this is not something that happened overnight or just in a year. It did take a while to evolve this whole this whole process. Um, so. Um, I want to talk now about, the, so I talked about the capability that Millstones has, and now I want to talk about how you might use it. And I'm going to be talking in a little bit of generic sense, and then we'll get down to the, the, the fun part of malware. But um, you can use our capabilities to do uh, three kind of key things. One is to characterize uh, those behaviors that I talked about. Um, and so we essentially can, can take all the things that are similar and cluster them. We call those clusters families. That's a biological term. Families of proteins is a biological term. They're just clusters. Uh, but we do like to keep the biology metaphors going when we can um, and keep those ties back. Um, and that would, um, enables us to, to reduce the kind of data that we can do for future comparisons. And I, I'm going to go into some specifics on some of these. Um, you can find new things, um, things that are similar to whatever it is you have, but not exact. Um, if you want to know exactly what the, that new thing might be, then you do need the ground truth. For doing an actual identification, but you can find things that are similar that maybe um, have never been identified before. So think zero days if we're talking about malware. Um, and then you can just identify new signals. Without looking for a, a specific signal, you can cluster similar behaviors and say, wow, that's a cluster. I wonder what that is. And find those, those things that are similar that you may not even uh, expected or knew existed. And we actually have a, a really specific um, example of, of uh, when that happened, uh, not something I'm going to have slides on, but I can talk about. I can talk about that in the Q and A. Um, so some examples that we worked on are binary analysis, malware or not malware. We've done it on what we call goodware. Um, changes in individual behavior based on NetFlow, trying to do anomaly detection essentially in uh, in NetFlow, but without doing um, packet inspection or things like that, but just the high level. Um, Parts of the NetFlow. Um, we can look at uh, computer behavior just based on simple log file. Um, and, and that's the case that's pretty interesting. We found some signals we didn't know existed when we did that experiment um, and found some interesting behaviors of computers that we weren't looking for. But we just said, hey, why are these things all together? What are they doing? And, and found some interesting behaviors. Um, okay, so with that, um, let's get to uh, 
uh, get to malware. So uh, I'm going to assume that, that most of the folks here um, understand what malware is um, and know that it's something that we need to, we need to detect and, and deal with. I am just going to point out some of the key issues around malware um, that, that we're focusing on. Um, one is that detection is hard. Um, the antiviruses, they work to a degree, um, and they probably work to, to protect most of our computers at home, but maybe not nation state types of enterprises, right? So um, um, it can be hard. Uh, malware writers are, are, are very good at um, obfuscating their code and doing the things they, kind of, they need to do to get, to get through and get past most, um, most endpoint protections. Um, there is uh, uh, a lot of malware. Um, the last I checked at CERT, nearly a billion potential artifacts of malware, malware just in their catalog alone. They do research on how to organize their catalog. <laughs> um, outside of actually trying to understand what the malware does, they actually do fundamental research on how to access all that information and, and manage it uh, because it's so big. Um, and so um, long gone are the days of, you know, a bunch of reverse engineers in a room getting a piece of code and trying to figure out what it does. That, that just does not scale. Um, in the way that needs to be um, at, at the national level. level. Um, and most of the time, malware is actually, is not caught before it does anything. Norm, almost always, someone gets hit with the malware first. Um, occasionally, something will get caught, um, uh, but, but not always. And I will say that um, endpoint protection's gotten a lot better. Uh, you know, we talk about MD5 hashes, that used to be the, the de facto way of looking for malware, but they do more than that now. They, they look at um, things they would might call behavior. Some of them will even run a little bit of uh, machine learning and things like that. They'll look at file headers and they'll look at um, other sort of file type things that they, they can then compare to a database um, and other signature-like things that they can, they can find to see if, um, if something meets um, what's in their database of things. So it doesn't have to be just a straight out MD5 sort of hash anymore. Um, and your rules are out there as well. Um, and then oftentimes things will be run in a sandbox. Um, but malware, um, a lot of malware uh, these days understand when they're in sandboxes and, and won't show their cards, right? So that's not always a foolproof method either of seeing if something is, um, is a piece of malware doing something bad. And also that's time consuming. And in this day and age, um, we all get a little annoyed if our, own, if our email doesn't show up as fast as it needs to and things like that. So um, we wanna be able to operate at the kind of data intensive scales um, that would really help solve the problem at the national level um, and also detect things that have never been seen before. Um, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk a bit about how what, uh, what we do can get us there. Uh, really briefly, though, I'm going to tell you a little bit about the biology behind this because it's important because we really do use it. So lots of times people will talk about bio-inspired cyber. Um, and I would say we're not bio-inspired. We're actually biology and cyber because uh, we really do use the actual algorithms and um, we really do use the, the actual parts of the biology. Um, we use it not just by being inspired by it, but actually using it. Um, so if there's any biologists out there watching this, um, just let me tell you ahead of time, I know I'm going to gloss over some things. Um, so um, uh, I'm going to do that for expediency so that we can talk more about the cyber side of things. Um, I worked in bioinformatics for a, a many, many years. 
And I occasionally would give talks on some of this and people would say, oh, you're a bioinformaticist. And I'd be like, no, I'm not. I'm a software engineer. But sometimes when you live in a world for that long, you, you really do learn quite a bit. Um, so anyway, the key part of the biology, like I mentioned before, is um, the idea of protein similarity. So in the natural world, um, if you remember at least your high school biology, you'll remember that uh, information comes from genes to proteins. And the proteins are really sort of the, the things that perform most of the chemical structural tasks that any living organism needs um, to, uh, to survive. Um, proteins are made up of what is called amino acids. Um, I think most people remember DNA and the nucleic acids, ATCs and Gs. Proteins are made of amino acids. They're just chemical structures. Um, there's approximately 20 of them. That's where I'm glossing over a few extra facts. There's approximately 20 of these chemical structures that are called amino acids. And um, essentially, protein um, puts these amino acids in a particular sequence. Um, and that sweet sequence will create a structure, and that's the picture that you see there. And what's interesting in proteins in the natural world is that protein sequences that are similar, they don't have to be exact, but are similar, will have similar function. And um, so uh, the whole, that, that whole paradigm sort of holds true for, for malware as well, and that's, that's what I'm going to get at is that, that that paradigm holds true for malware. If we can create a sequence of what malware looks like, that sequence informs uh, infers its function. And, and some of our very early testing, we tried to prove that and we did, and then, then we sort of developed this whole program after we did prove that. Um, in bioinformatics world, each of the amino acids is, reset, is uh, represented by a single character. As you can see, a string of those characters there would represent some, some part of a, of a protein. Um, and that's how, and that's how they're dealt with uh, in situ. Is the, in the computers there are just strings uh, of these letters. Those letters in that order create that sequence, create that structure, and that's where we get back to the part where order matters and not frequency. Um, but like anything in biology, as you know, evolution. Well, you've probably heard of things like junk DNA and things like that. There's going to be some minor minor changes and and uh, and things. And, but it, it holds true that if the structures are similar enough, the functions will be um, similar as well. Um, and so, okay, the next step for us is, all right, that's great for proteins, but what does that have to do with malware? So we have to figure out one, how can we represent a piece of binary code into a, into a, a structure, into a sequence of some kind? Um, and I'm gonna show you a very scary slide here. Um, lots of eye charts. I'm gonna sit on this slide for a little while and, and talk about it. Um, but uh, I'm just going to give you the, the basics of how we do this um, and the biology that we do. Um, so one of the first things that we have to do is figure out how to represent uh, code in, um, uh, as a sequence, as a protein sequence, for example, a sequence of these letters. Um, and we did a few experiments uh, early on, but we eventually got to, the part, got to the point where we said, okay, we're just going to disassemble the binary. Um, ignore the opcode, operand, excuse me, just keep the opcodes. And we're going to put each opcode in order for a given function. And um, each opcode essentially would get a letter assigned to it. Um, and we would put those in order, and that would be the representation of that part of the binary code. Um, so, for example, move go, it becomes an A, push becomes a B, jump becomes a C, and you get some string of letters, just like we had before. Um, represented um, as your as your function. 
So if you remember, I said that in biology, there are only 20 amino acids. So the algorithm that we had really only dealt with 20 amino acids. So we only had 20 characters to work with. Um, there are a boatload more um, opcodes uh, in any given um, chipset that, uh, that um, uh, won't, won't fit into 20. Um, so we did a lot of experimentation and uh, research into how to group things together. So all the moves go to A, and there's lots of moves. Um, all the all the push type functions go to B. And we really did group them, and that actually helps uh, because the the differences between the the, the singular opcodes is not different enough that you just do want them to match up when you're trying to do the matching, um, so that we're not having to worry about very exact matching. Um, so if you have these functions uh, in, as part of this code, and now you want to compare them, there's an algorithm that's been developed over 40, 40 or, or almost 50 years now um, called BLAST. Many of you, if you're in biology, you've heard this for sure. Um, it's Basic Local Alignment Search Tool. That's an acronym I do remember. Um, but everyone just calls it BLAST. And the idea is they take these two strings, these two protein strings, and they run them through a lot of heuristics, Smith, Waterman, Smothers, um, to try and align them up the best that they can. And that's what you see on, on the top right is long strings of letters, binary one function, binary two function, those strings of letters. And what I tried to show below that was how the algorithm would do things like try to align them. The first parts there align up quite nicely. Uh, then if you kind of move some things over, you can get more to line up. If you don't care too much about that H and Q mismatch, um, then the rest starts to line up. And, and what happens is you, you start with a high score and as you start to manipulate uh, these alignments, that score gets decremented. And however much manipulation you do, eventually that score gets pretty low. And that means those things don't really line up very, very well. Um, one, a couple of the things that in biology that are kind of interesting is the difference between the H and the Q uh, amino acids might be chemically very, very similar. And if that's the case, then that mismatch isn't so bad. Um, if they're chemically very, very different, then that mismatch will probably hit your score a little harder. And there's something called a scoring matrix to help um, identify things that are similar versus things that are not. Now that's biology and chemistry. It has nothing to do with, uh, with cybersecurity. So a couple of things that we needed to do was try and get some of the chemistry and biology out of the algorithms because they really are being used. They've been developed by grad students for 40 years. Um, and so we had to get it out and make it turn it much more into something that understood uh, cybersecurity and in this case, malware. Um, so we had to figure out how to create our own scoring matrices. Um, and at the same time, I'm gonna backtrack a little bit. Um, biology as it was growing and we could understand how to, how to sequence proteins and, and um, especially genomes started to to grow really fast and get a lot, a lot of data. The BLAST algorithm is not fast, not certainly fast enough for the kind of data that they had. And I, I just, I, I remember being back in those days thinking, wow, we're talking big data. Um, and not too long after that, when I moved over into cybersecurity, I thought, wow, I was an idiot. I've never seen data. <laughs> I didn't have a clue what big data was back then compared to cybersecurity data. Um, so this, we had to figure out how to scale this. This algorithm, it's a lot of heuristics, a lot of uh, math. So we had to figure out how to get it to scale. Um, so we actually rewrote uh, the algorithms in much more efficient code, and we highly parallelized it so that it could be run um, on HPCs um, over and over again. And so you'll you'll see there that uh, we now call that MAD blast. Um, MAD stood for something, but I just think it's appropriate um, for uh, for what we did to it. Um, so we could run a lot of these comparisons. 
um, and compare these any two functions and see if they're similar. Um, and uh, and we also had to end up writing our own disassembler. So we originally used things like Objump, if, uh, if you've heard of that. Uh, but malware is, is, doesn't do normal things, and the traditional disassemblers would just get choked. Um, so we ended up writing our own. We wrote one based on the capstone libraries, if you've heard of those, and we've recently written our own from scratch so that we can do some more advanced disassembly, um, find functional boundaries when we need to, disassemble binaries even if we can't find, if we're not sure where the header is, things like that. So we've done a lot of work in actually getting to the disassembly part so we can get an accurate representation of, of the code itself. Um, okay, so that's the biology and how some of the algorithms work. Again, we used we we started out for the first many years just flat out using the blast tool as it was, and then we had to then we had to change it. Um, one other side note to writing our own was we weren't we weren't then limited to twenty. We got as many as we wanted. Um, you don't want to have too many uh, because then similarity is is a lot harder to find. Uh, but we do use around 30 to 32 um, for the Intel A6 um, uh, architectures, and, um, and we don't have to use letters. We can use any ASCII characters, and um, at one point, uh, the developers thought they'd get cute and say, well, we can use emojis now, and showed me a, a whole data file full of nothing but emojis. But we put the nicks on that and said no more emojis in me. Um, just use plain ASCII characters that we can read in a reasonable way. Um, okay, so so that's the biology behind it. Um, now I want to get to a little bit of you know how are we going to really how we use this and what the impact of doing this is. Um, one of the one of the key impacts that we have is in the idea of creating family. They're just clusters again. The biology biology tool um, biology speak is is families of proteins. So we have families of cyber proteins, but they're clusters. Um, we've used a number of uh, different clustering algorithms, um, mostly born out of what the biologists use as well. Um, they're based on the score that we get out of the comparison. So, for example, say we have 100 binaries and you disassemble those into, for round numbers, 1,000 functions. Um, now you have 1,000 functions of things to compare to or try to understand. Um, so what we want to do is group them by how similar they are. So we would do what we call an all versus all. We would just compare everything to everything and then take all the scores and cluster things that are similar together um, into families. So now we have a much smaller set of things. We have a smaller set of families because of all the things that are very similar um, to deal with. Um, and so uh, understanding what families are outside of biology took us some experimentation. Um, we have a default of you need to have six members to be a family. And if there's only three or four things that look similar, we don't call it a family. We put that into what we call an orphan bucket. Love our biology metaphors. Um, but they might become a family as we add more data to it. If we only started out with 100 binaries, that's not a lot compared to the almost uh, billion that uh, in, in the CERT catalog right now. Um, the reason these families form can be very informative. Um, some of them, it's a little hard to see in the pictures. That some of the, the almost look like just solid dots. Those are probably things that are all the exact same thing. Um, it's all code that's exactly the same. Um, and so that can be informative. Um, in this case, there's also a picture of, you know, two families being connected together. You can see the kind of line going through there. That can be informative as to how those two things might be related. Um, lots that you can interrogate about the families. Um, and then you, you can use this in all kinds of phylogeny kinds of questions. Um, evolution is one that's interesting. So you can sometimes um, see the evolution of code, but it's not the true sense of evolution. In biology, of course, you can't go back 300 years and change things. 
where in uh, you know malware you can you can certainly do that. So you don't have that sort of linear set of evolution like we do in biology, but you can perhaps see how things are related. Maybe um, something was a subset of something else. Looks like it was formed from something else. Um, and at times you can see sort of family trees and, and things like that through using these methods, which can be informative. Um, so so now if we have the these families. And we have fewer families than we had when we started with. So instead of a thousand functions to compare, say I'm, say I'm now down to 50 families of very similar things. That's helpful, but what do I do with that? If I have something new and I want to see what it is, I still have to compare it to all of my things. And um, so I want to, we, what the biologists do is they create a single representation of that family. And there's some ways you could do that. You could just pull one out and say, that's my representation. But you might get unlucky and it might be the very, very edge case of that family, not truly that well represent, representative of the family. Um, so the biologists use a couple methods and we followed them and use these same methods. Um, one is called um, consensus alignment uh, or consensus, excuse me. And basically the idea is um, that you find in, in the entire family, you just find all the parts that match and sort of put an X in any part that doesn't perfectly match. Um, and you just create this new version, this new representation of the family, um, and it works. And you, you might be thinking to yourself, wow, that's, that's pretty lossy. Um, but again, if you remember our algorithm, things don't have to be exact matches. Um, they just need to be similar. And so sort of losing some of the fidelity uh, doesn't really hurt us because our algorithm is um, sort of built on, on that concept uh, natively. Um, when there are very large families or sometimes families that are families, but they're pretty diverse, um, that can that signature, that representation um, can be less effective. Um, and so um, biologists and, and we've implemented this as well, use things like hidden Markov models and use profile based signatures um, to get a little bit more fidelity in the representations uh, of a particular family. Um, so we use both, we've encoded both. Of course, using profiles is um, resource intensive compared to consensus. Um, and so, so we're always mindful of, of being able to do what we can do at scale. Um, and, and we have to make those trade-offs sometimes between uh, accuracy and, and speed uh, as in most things. Um, so I just wanna show you a little bit of the power of the, the family idea, just a, an example of it. Um, I apologize if these colors aren't great. These are actually screenshots, so I can't do much with them without a lot of uh, PowerPoint magic, which I'm not great at. Um, but these are two different pieces of code, um, and they're they're both encryption. Um, and if you see a lot of the opcodes uh, line up, uh, the operands and and the uh, the registers and things like that are not the same. At times, you can see it's kind of highlighted in blue, or the even the the path through. Um, the assembly code is a little bit different. Um, so by eye, you could see that these are very similar um, and uh, probably do very similar things, but we can't look at everything similarly, you know, by hand and, and determine that. Um, and so the nice thing is these two things group together in a family and you know that they're very similar just by that grouping without having to look at them uh, by hand in any way, shape or form. So um, just to sort of hit that home, it was, we had similar but non-identical sequences. They were grouped together in a family um, and uh, there was a lot of things that weren't very similar, but we still understood that together they were both doing encryption. Um, and so we have families that represent similar behaviors and we can use that in a lot of ways uh, for finding new things and seeing where they fit in, in the set of families that you might have, or just understanding that these are similar things. 
And the beauty of that is if you took one piece of code out of that and said, oh, that's doing encryption, now I know what that family does. I don't have to look at all everything in that family, which could be thousands, if not, if not more, um, different versions of, of that code. Um, so really, the idea is to really sort of reduce the kind of data that you have to sort through um, and do this at, at scales that, that matter uh, in our national security mission. Um, so um, the other thing I was going to bring up was uh, a couple of um, experiments that we did. We wanted to understand, I'll go ahead and switch, sorry. Um, we kind of wanted to understand what does compilers do to our, our method? Um, and this is just one set of experiments that we've done on this method to, to figure out where it fits, um, but I thought it might be interesting. And the reason, part of the reason why I, was, I thought it was interesting is because we, we took a very much of a, an experimental approach to this. This is how we do science at the lab. Um, and that is, we said, let's run an experiment um, and let's see what question, what questions do we want to ask? And let's see if we can generate data and answer those questions. Um, so one of the questions is, um, do the differences in compiler options limit our ability to detect similar binaries using this capability? Um, and so are we sensitive to compiler options, but do they fool, and do they fool us? Um, the second question are, um, if you had the same source code built with different compilers or possibly different versions, um, would we see them um, as similar or not? And could we detect things based on their compilers? Um, and so that's, that's the other side of that question. I won't go through the whole methodology just for, for time here, um, but I'll, I'll give you a little bit of summary of what we found. Um, so we did find that um, a bit of a mixed bag when it came to options. Um, and as we as we looked at what the results were, we we kind of understand them. So, um, optimizing at zero with you know almost no optimization sort of stood on its own from actual optimization. So there was some distinction between non-optimized and optimized. And in the optimized sets, they they somewhat grouped together. Um, there was a light set of optimizations for OG and one and then the sort of the the fast and aggressive optimizations grouped together as well. And we could sense the differences between those. Um, but at the same time, they didn't, um, it was a pretty sensitive test for those, but code wasn't, the same code wasn't necessarily put into different families based on its optimization. Um, so if we wanted to look for things compiled differently, we could, but they didn't necessarily um, affect our ability to put things in a family. Um, so, so that's good, and it's good to know. Whatever the answer is, it's good to know, so we know exactly what we get when we put things together in family. Um, in order to answer the um, second question, we compiled a couple different tools. We used log keys and nmap, something close to malware, but that we were allowed to use on our normal computers. Um, and um, through uh, three different compilers and 10, one, two, three, yeah, 10 different uh, versions of the compilers altogether and compared them all. And this is just a heat map of the results of all of those comparisons. So it's interesting. Clang looks like Clang, which is great. Um, Intel looks like Intel, which is great. GCC kind of looks like GCC, but there are some differences between 4.8 and 4.9, which really threw us for a loop because normally you would think there would be major differences between like 4.9 and 5. <laughs> uh, but this is smack dab in the middle of 4.8 and uh, 4.9. Um, and so we did some research to figure out if we could understand why, and it turns out that there were some major changes in the underlying structures of the results of compiler between 4.8 and 4.9. 4.9 was kind of the first test of whether or not they were going to go in that version, and then 5 was the release after, uh, after they sort of tested it in 4.9 and polished it up. 
Um, so it really did sort of meet the pattern. We just, we didn't know it until we did some research then. Um, and so essentially um, the results came out, uh, again, not good, bad, or ugly, but we can understand them, that our process can differentiate between compilers and sometimes between versions of compilers, but not something you'd really, I think we'd really want to hang our hat on um, without knowing truly what the compilers do. We're so, we're really dependent on that underlying structure, right? Um, and um, we can differentiate between groups of, uh, of compiler options, um, and, which is interesting. We weren't sure that that was, that was going to be true. And, and this helps in ways, if you think about some of the folks who are trying to understand malware, um, it can be used for attribution, um, especially different compilers, especially if you have unique compilers. Um, but oftentimes you'll know that certain, uh, certain bad actors, you like to use certain kinds of compilers, maybe even certain kinds of options, but probably not as much as just the compilers themselves. Um, if you may want to divvy up your, your catalog of malware by compiler um, for attribution or for other reasons, and so this is a data point that you could do that with, um, it might help the reverse engineers to know how something was compiled if they're getting in deep into the code. Um, and there was the idea that we might be able to predict new things um, based on using a different compiler. We never got to test that, so that's just uh, that's still just a hypothesis for us now. Um, so that, those are just a couple of um, experiments that, that we ran uh, on, our, on, our, on our tech um, to try and get to really understand how far we can go with classification of malware, detection of malware, things like that. Um, and, and we've done many other things, but again, interest of time, I just pointed out a few things. Um, I do wanna say that lest you think that I'm trying to tell you I have the latest and greatest malware detection of all time, um, I'm not running around buying islands and driving Ferraris, so um, it, it's not perfect. Um, and uh, uh, of course, it's not perfect, or like I said, I'd be a bazillionaire right now. Um, but uh, some key things that we do know about uh, packers, if, if you're in the world of malware, you'll know that a lot of malware is packed. Um, if you don't know that, it, um, that world, what it means is they take all the actual code, put it in the data segment, and there's a, a little bit of code that says jump into the data segment and start executing from there. We don't look at the data segment, um, and so we don't, we don't then end up finding what that code really does unless we unpack it. We don't offer an unpacker. There's a bazillion of them out there. Um, we always sort of figured that this capability, it's all API-based. We figured it would live inside somebody, uh, somebody's bigger structure of things that would have unpackers and would actually do the peeling off of malware. This is just the, the comparison, the capability itself. Um, we can identify the packer, although there's lots of ways to do that. They're probably a lot easier than running our system, um, but the code is there, so we can do that. Um, and then something like DLL injection, there's probably lots of examples like this, but DLL injection is um, really database. Um, if you look at the code in the DLL injection, it's all good code. It's put together in a particular way and the way they, they use um, uh, the operands and things like that, that's where the evilness comes from, but we don't see that because that's not what we look at. Um, and so something like DLL injection is not something that we're gonna natively, natively see um, given the, the nature of uh, how we do the work. Um, so definitely not perfect by, by any stretch, but we do believe we'll get you far more protection when it comes to uh, detecting zero day malware. Um, and um, a lot of the obfuscation techniques are automatically just mitigated. If you think about something like a no-op sled or a for loop that do, does nothing or a bunch of code that just, sit, just sits there, 
the algorithm will will just create gaps for that that doesn't match up and match everything else up and you'll still get a pretty high score. Um, so it just sort of ignores a whole lot of that noise that you'll find a lot of times in, in malware um, and still find things that are very similar even though, even if there's a ton of junk inside or things are rearranged differently. Um, one of the things I forgot to mention that we do, we break things down by function and we look at each function. Um, and when you do that, you're gonna get a lot of um, functions of just normal code. We whitelist all that code out. Um, so we're not chasing our tail saying, hey, these things match perfectly because they both use printf, right? That and all the normal DLL code that we can find um, that's, you know, regular code, we sort of whitelist all that and then just keep the code that's doing something interesting um, and, and compare at that level. Um, and so um, the other thing that's a, a plus minus is that it is a fuzzy and lossy process. Um, so you can't reverse engineer it. This is good in some ways because we can share the representations of code without sharing the code around. So once, um, so what we do at, at home at PNNL is um, we take the malware and uh, we take large co large copies of malware and disassemble it off the network. Um, they get very mad at us if we drop a lot of uh, malware on the network on purpose. Um, so we disassemble it off the network, turn it all into the protein representations and take all of that back onto the network and use all of our network resources. So, so the fact that you can't reverse engineer it and, and you, you turn it directly into um, strings instead of code, it can be helpful, but it does mean a lot of housekeeping. There's no way to get sort of get back to where you were. You can't look at a protein and go, oh, that's interesting. What is that code, right? So there's no way to regenerate that code. Um, so we do a lot of housekeeping, a lot of housekeeping so that we can keep track of what parts of the code created those strings so that if you did want to get back into the code itself and like an IDA pro or something, you could jump right into where that code was. So this, these two regions of two different things really matched up. You want to see what they do. We can take you right to that. Um, but it's, a, it's done through a lot of housekeeping. Um, and then you really do need to understand uh, false positive, false negative, true positive, true negative. Um, one thing we learned early on is that you throw a lot of false positives at defenders and they will just hate you and ignore you and never use you again. Um, so the, the algorithms themselves can be really tuned. What score do you need to be called similar um, and things like that. It takes a lot of experimentation um, and there's no really great answer for that without sort of experimenting and doing a lot of statistics to make sure that your false positive rates are pretty darn small um, and that your uh, uh, true positive rates are, are where you want them to be. Um, if you use this um, in another domain, um, then the mappings that you make between to make proteins, that's a very domain specific thing, very often done by hand um, in some way, shape, form that can be time consuming and you really do need to understand the process to make sure you're doing that in a good way. Um, and, and like I said, you do need testing and experiments to really assess effectiveness. There's no way to say this is going to be 87% effective in that domain um, that we know of at least without trying it. Um, and then lastly, is it doesn't work. It doesn't naturally work well on small data. We've had to make some mod modifications on, on to get it to work on small levels of data. Usually, 10 characters is our minimum. Uh, but the nature of the heuristics that we use, we'll see anything else than 10 characters is mostly noise. And so, if you compare two things of 10 characters, it'll say, "I got nothing. That's just noise." Um, so it's not perfect, but it does have a. a it does have um, some capability and has proven to find itself some uh, zero days. Um, and to identify malware that actually hadn't been identified before uh, really quickly. We had a, a case at the lab and there was a binary floating around. People weren't really sure what it was. Um, we compared it to um, a cross-section of the CERT catalog we had at the time 
um, found it to be similar to uh, two sets of Trojans that they had. And turns out that they, they said that is indeed, once they reverse engineered it, uh, it was indeed a, a new version of that Trojan that they had not even gotten into their catalog yet. Um, and, um, and we got to name it. Uh, so there's at least one piece of malware out in the world that, uh, that our staff got to name. Um, so, so it does work in finding uh, in, in finding similar things that have been identified before. Um, so, running close on time, I'm going to move on real quick. Um, another project, the mutant project that we have, um, takes the idea of doing similarity between binaries and looks at what we call dissimilarity. The the um, the general term is binary diversity, but I work with a lot of very smart statisticians and mathematicians and say diversity is among a population. If you're comparing two things, it's dissimilarity. Um, and so we like to be true and call it dissimilarity. Um, and at first we thought this would be great. You know, we'll see how similar it is and we'll sort of reverse it somehow. It doesn't work that way. So understanding how different two things are is not just sort of the opposite of understanding how similar they are. And so uh, we did some um, some engineering and some research into how to create um, a different methodology of scoring after we do the comparisons. Um, and, and we're doing this for a particular sponsor, um, and uh, which is why it says it's a, it's capability available. A little bit of a marking slide here. Um, I'll give uh, I'll give anyone extra props if they understand why this picture is on this slide. Take a good look at it. Um, but this is an ongoing project that we have for understanding how dissimilar um, any two pieces of code might be. Um, and that's just an evolution of the work that we did before. Um, then finally, I did want to just say um, shout out to my project team. And but this is not really about putting their names on a slide. What I really wanted to point out was <coughs> the diversity of the team. Um, and this is sort of the power of the national labs. Uh, so I, I worked in bioinformatics. I worked in physics. I worked in chemistry. I worked national security and cybersecurity over a, a long career, of course. But I'm a software engineer. Uh, now I'm a cyber researcher engineer. Um, and um, but we've got biologists and HPC experts, reverse engineers, math and statistics, UI developers, malware experts, um, and all of those are on one team working this project together. Um, and that's just sort of par for the course of adding national lab. That's sort of how it works. Um, I have some stars against Cameron just because um, he's one of our favorite sons. He started as a, as an intern in the summer, started doing some of the reverse engineering work. Continued to work through his senior year and actually got to use our project for his senior thesis. So he got paid to do his senior thesis. He cheated just a little. Um, and, uh, you know, by the time he graduated, he had already had a job offer so he could just keep doing the, the wonderful work he's been doing. He's been on our team for a couple of years now. So that's an, another thing that we love to do at the lab is, is work, uh, work through internships to, to, generate, um, to, to generate new staff. Um, so, in the interest of time, I will just say that there are lots of ways to work with us at the National Lab, um, joint research, uh, internships, and of course, um, staff positions. Um, there's links here. I'll leave this up for just a little while um, if you're interested at all. If you have any questions about the lab or what we do or about this technology, um, we have some time left. I'm happy to answer questions. Um, and, uh, and then you can certainly reach out uh, through any of these means as well, and then I will put my information there. Pretty simple, Elena at pnnl.gov. Um, and uh, that's how you can find me if you need me. And that is the, the end of my limited set of slides. Well, thank um, you, Elena. Okay, that, so, was, that was really good. I appreciate you taking time to come and talk with us today. And, and we do have time for some questions. Um, I have uh, one question up at the moment. And the question is, when you map the binary to a family, 
what kinds of common characteristics can be observed? So, so really what the family represents is that, is that set of behaviors. It's that structurally those two functions are similar. Um, and uh, what those similar, similarities are will really boil down to what's, what's in the code itself. Um, so we don't find common characteristics um, at a higher level. It's really at that very lowest level. That those are structurally similar, much like the, the two pictures that I showed with the crazy colors. Um, if you know what the family does, now you know what this new code does. Um, but that's, that's a level at which we find common characteristics across families. Great, thank you. Um, mm -hmm. We're waiting to see if we can get some additional questions to come in. In the meantime, I'll remind the audience that all these sessions are being recorded and you'll be able to view them at a later date uh, on the Sirius website and the Sirius YouTube channel. So if you have questions, now's a good time to type them in. We've still got several minutes. We can, uh, we can handle several questions. And Mike, let me know if you see anything on the chat. Yeah, I have one. Um, it says, what is the success rate of this method? Oh, that, uh, that is a great question. And um, I had some older slides of, uh, of some rock curves that we did, but it was, they were pretty old. Um, but the, it, it's hard to determine absolute success because you don't often know if malware even gets through. And by the time you do, it's, it's hard to tell exactly where, when and how it came through. Um, but we can with um, a good amount of, of malware in a catalog that we process through families. Uh, we get uh, true positive rates in that 98, 99%, um, with true negative rates being, or I mean, false positive rates being sort of one to two percent, which is about the level that you want to be. You really don't want a lot of false positives coming through. Um, and, and so the more data that we can get to understand the world of malware, the better we will be at detecting all of the things. So if you start with 100, you're... Um, your true positive, false positive rates are not going to are not going to be quite that good. But if you if you start out with more like a thousand, ten thousand uh, pieces of known malware, then you get a pretty broad set of all the different kinds of malware out there. Then our true positive rates get up get up there pretty high, which is why it was easy to sell when we when we were commercializing it. Um, because if it's if it's much lower than that, people are going to say, "Ah, eh, fire, I can handle." Um, I see. I do, I do see another question that says, "Do you have an extension of this to you an extension of this to failure characterization for a fixed application? Um, uh, for example, controlling hardware. Um, so anything that we can disassemble, um, we this would apply to. And, and yes, um, we have um, versions of this that we've been developing for looking at code that controls things like SCADA and ICS devices." Uh, very often that code is different. We have to just assemble it differently, um, and that. But once we get through that process, the rest is pretty. Is just sort of turn the crank kind of thing. So if that's what you meant, um, yes, we we can do that. It's a little different process, but it's something that we've been researching. Any other questions? Oh, no. just popped up. Yep. Were other algorithms for matching besides BLAST tested? Um, 
we we started in the biology world with blast um and part of the reason was we um we actually originally created a high performance computing version a very paralyzed version of the blast algorithm and so we could do it at the scales that we needed to after that um we looked at some other types of Jerry, are you still on? Jerry's on. I see. Uh, I see. Yeah. We lost Elena. We, we lost her Elena. answer. But uh, I have a few more here. I'm going to just paste them into the chat for everybody to see. Elena coming back. Hey. <laughs> if anyone's still here. <laughs> yes, we're all still here. And uh, I am, I have no idea what happened. WebEx just shut down completely in the sorry. middle of the <laughs> So you were answering a question, and there's been a couple more uh, posted since, uh, since okay. you disappeared. I'm so sorry about that. I have no idea what happened. Um, uh, you were talking remind about me the blast. question I was answering. I think you were talking oh, yeah, about using Blast. Yes. So we never really did physically try other comparison methods um, because we were doing so well with Blast. Um, I know there's been some new ones that are that have popped up in certainly ways of advancing Blast, but we've we've sort of settled in and gotten good answers with Blast. So we haven't done a, a really comprehensive test of, of new comparison methods. So. And then the other question uh, I see is, where do you want to go next with this? Oh, that. So. Um, there's lots of ways to go. The work that we're doing in, in diversity is one. Um, binary diversity has become a, a, a big topic in national security. Um, and we don't have a way of creating code that's diverse, but we have a way of measuring the diversity of the code, really the dissimilarity. Um, and I think that's gonna be really, really important. So we'd really like to continue to develop that. Um, the other side of it, I think, is working with some of the folks that collect malware, um, different government agencies that do this, um, that have a lot of malware and haven't done a good job of figuring out how to really understand what they have. And I think that um, um, getting them to use this tool um, to, to really characterize what they have and shortcut will save a lot of, a lot of time and energy um, for what they do. Um, so that's sort of, a, that's a little bit of the strategy going forward as far as um, business development. Um, technically, what we need to do is a couple of things. We need it to go even faster than it does. Um, the more power you throw at it, the faster it can go, but still it can be time consuming when you have lots and lots of, uh, of code to process. Um, so we need it to go faster. Um, and um, we need to be able to sort of build up our families and then iterate over them as time goes on. And we are still researching our best methods for, I've got new stuff, I put it in a family, I've got new stuff, I put it in a family, then do we need to sort of reorganize our families? Maybe that family is really two different families at this point. And that's some of the research that we're still looking at is really how do we generate the right kind of families and maintain them in a, in a meaningful way. Um, so I see a question, are you considering applying this approach to other domains like software bugs detection? 
um, machine learning based sequence identifying algorithms. What are your thoughts on these counterparts? Um, yes. So we've actually done this on good code to make sure that code is what it says it is. We operate a national user facility here at the lab and people can just come with their computational chemistry codes and biology codes and put them on the high performance computers and run them. Um, so we have, uh, we've given this over to them to say, look, they say this is a chemistry code. Why don't, why don't you compare it to what you know chemistry codes do and see if that's really what it is. We can do that. Um, yes, originally we did a lot for looking at um, uh, just trying to find um, holes in bugs, uh, holes in bugs in software. Um, there's not much of a market for that, especially in the operating system where all the operating system manufacturers are pretty good at, um, at finding their own gaps in the bug bounty type programs out there. They find them pretty quickly. Um, so not probably a market that we're going after there. Um, we, we tried machine learning. To be honest, the ML and Millstone stands for machine learning. We don't do it. Um, we couldn't get better than what we were already doing with machine learning and then BLAST. Um, most of the endpoint protection folks that are doing machine learning are do using features like file size and, and those kinds of things as features. It gets them there. It doesn't get them the kind of accuracy and similarity that we still find using the BLAST method. Um, it's hard to keep up with everything that's on out there, um, but we do have an entire group of folks doing data science and machine learning. So, so we do work with them from time to time and to try and determine if there might be a better algorithm for getting where we want to go. Great. There was one question above that. Uh, does this method apply towards attribution at yes. all? Can you see the family to limit? Can you yes. see family to lineage? Yes, um, it very much can. Um, you, the one thing is, is we can sort of we can create our families based on particular things like the compiler being used or, or other kinds of things. Um, and that can very much lead to attribution. If you can pull similar things together that you know you have attribution on, um, whether it's the kind of compiler or a particular code or particular method, um, then very much could be used for, for helping with attribution. And that is a, a key point of uh, what some of the sponsors are, are, are looking at doing. Um, you, there's, if you know much, there, there, there can very much be some sort of flavors of uh, nation state actors and what they do and don't do. And sometimes you can just run strings and try and, and you know, figure out attribution or something simple. But um, I think we can get closer to folks that are trying to obfuscate a little bit more, but find here's an algorithm that they tend to use. Here's a, here's a way of, uh, of coding that they tend to use. Here's a particular um, compiler that they tend to use. Um, and and we, can, we can give that to attribution for sure. Okay, well, perfect timing. It's just clicked over to two o'clock. And I, I have to say, I, I can't imagine having a better closing talk for our summer seminar series. So hopefully we'll, uh, we'll be uh, back to doing this again next summer. And as I said earlier, we hope to be able to continue uh, broadcasting seminars such as this throughout the school year as well. So watch this space for that. My uh, last shameless plug will be to uh, please register for the Sirius Symposium. Uh, we're doing this virtually this year. It'll be on September 29th and 30th. Go to the Sirius webpage and you'll see how to register. Uh, as we're going virtual, uh, there's no charge to attend our two-day symposium, and I think uh, everyone on this call will, will really enjoy the experience. So I would ask you to, uh, to go ahead and, uh, and uh, sign up if you're able. So with that, I want to again thank Elena Peterson for joining us today. It was a great session. I really appreciate it. Uh, I, I love the topic, and I think it, uh, it opens a few eyes to, to what can be done. So with mm -hmm. that, we'll let everybody go, and uh, we'll hopefully see you very soon. Thank you so much. Thank you.